This episode of Meeting in Middle America with Stephen Olakara is brought to you by UW-Milwaukee, Waggett, and Bridge and & Build. And now, here's your host, founder and CEO of the Millennial Action Project, Stephen Olakara. Welcome to Meeting in Middle America, our podcast looking at the ideas and leaders who are bringing people together in the Midwest. And uh, on the show today is a wonderful reporter with WISP Business and WISPolitics.com, Stephanie Hoff. And she's not only a guest, she is a guest co-host uh, today. And uh, she and I will be uh, reflecting on a conversation I recently had with Martin Luther King III. Uh, We recently hosted Mr. King at the Millennial Action Project Annual Summit. We call it the Future Summit, bringing together our young lawmakers across the country, across party lines. And I had a fireside chat discussion with Mr. King on political bridge building through the King philosophy. And we were able to unpack some of the modern movements we've seen, but also look at his father, Dr. King, who, in my view, is a modern founding father of our country and had a powerful way of achieving systemic change through the methodology of bridge building. So first of all, Stephanie, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for helping me, uh, you know, reflect on these clips together. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, Stephanie, just for the audience to get to know you a little bit more, you're based in Madison. Is that right? I am based in Madison and I was born and raised um, in northern central Wisconsin. Now, is that when people say they go up north to Wisconsin, that's that's where they go, right? Yes. Yes. If you're uh, I, I grew up near Chippewa Falls and that's the home of Line and Kugels. So if you're familiar with the Northwoods brew, that's that's near me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's such a beautiful part of the state. So uh, for everyone listening, I encourage you to, to go up and visit it. Okay, so we're going to dig into the first clip here. It's a discussion Mr. King and I had about finding common ground in order for us to coexist in a diverse democracy. So here is the clip. One thing that, that would be really helpful, Mr. King, is if you could just kind of break down the, the King philosophy um, in your own words um, what are the core ingredients and what do you think is most important for you know, young leaders to be uh, thinking about today? My father had a unique way of saying, this is what I believe, but it was not in a way that would say, if you don't believe what I believe, then you will not be able to coexist. It was a way saying that this is a way and this is how I've chosen to live my life. If you like, I can certainly share with you. Uh, what it actually manifests into. Uh, But I'm not going to push what I believe on you. I'm just going to exhibit through the light that I shine. Stephen, it would be great if all political conversations went that way. That's not what my America looks like. A lot of times people on all sides of the political spectrum, all age groups are, it's my way or the highway. So, so Stephen, how do you find common ground and coexistence with, with other people? What's that first step? I'm a jazz musician. Many of the listeners know that my, my uh, background before getting into politics was in, was in music. And the thing, the most important skill I learned as a musician is the importance of listening, of deep listening without prejudgment, without writing people off. And through that process of opening your ear to different perspectives, you're able to open your heart. And I think that 
mode of operating is essential in a diverse democracy. And I think that's what Mr. King is, is speaking to. You know, if we uh, start attacking people before we even start listening, uh, then that's no way to find common ground. But one thing I've learned over and over again through our work with Millennial Action Project is that you never know with whom you might be able to build a bridge with. And we've been working this year a lot on safe voting uh, amidst this pandemic. And we've brought allies into that conversation who would never be on the radar of voting rights organizations or in, in the conversation about making it easier to vote. Uh, but we reached out and listened uh, and heard how they're approaching the issue. And through that process, we're able to not only find common ground, but recruit them to be active and public uh, champions of safe voting this year. Uh, so part of it is listening. And then the second thing I want to highlight, and I think Mr. King talked about it a bit in, in our discussion, is the importance of empathizing and, uh, and, and the mutuality of, of human existence. He, he said later in the conversation, uh, quoting his father, that you can't be what you ought to be until I be what I ought to be. And I can't be what I ought to be until you be what you ought to be, meaning that we're all in this uh, network of uh, mutuality, as his father said. So when you look at our society through that lens, I think uh, instead of seeing people as the enemy who might have a different view than them, uh, you can instead start to empathize. And sometimes with this political divide, as you mentioned, Stephanie, earlier, that you look at America today and it's so polarized what can I as an individual do to be part of the solution? I think we can be part of the solution every day in our daily interactions with people. We can either look at people with suspicion uh, and demonize them, or we can open our hearts and empathize with people and have a more inclusive conversation. So I think that's the paradigm shift Mr. King is getting at. A lot of people think it's just the older generations who are stubborn and uh, don't want to listen to 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 the other side, but younger people can be like that too. And you work with young leaders. So are you finding um, that it's easier to get younger generations to talk or are you working with multi-generations? How are you bringing people together and, and what's the response? Yeah, it's a great question. And we mainly decided to focus on the younger generation because we think that investment in young leaders is the best strategy to change the future. In many ways, I often say when you're at a MAP event, you get a glimpse into what the future of our political system looks like because these are the rising stars and they're going to have an outsized impact over time. And we often make the argument at MAP that political bridge building is like a muscle that you have to build. And so if you can start building that muscle early on in not just your public service career, but in life in general, then you can really build up that muscle mass and eventually over time, bridge building becomes a like second nature. You build up that muscle memory. So I think you're right that, uh, that not all young people today have that mentality, but I have noticed uh, there is a generational shift happening. Uh, we just actually published uh, some research with the Luger Center uh, that actually shows uh, in Congress, members of Congress under the age of 45 are more bipartisan, more willing to cross the aisle and build bipartisan legislation together than legislators over the age of 45. Uh, and they've always had, uh, in the time they've done this study, which has been, I think, for maybe three sessions of Congress now, 
always had the younger members of Congress disproportionately populating their top, you know, their top 10, top 25 uh, list of members on this bipartisan index. And I think what's behind that is a younger generation that's more focused on issues than on party. And you see this in the data, a plurality of millennials actually identify as independent, still have very firm views. It doesn't, independent doesn't mean you don't have views. I actually think young people have the most uh, principled views in many ways, um, but aren't so interested in the way that partisanship divides our country. Now we're going to move to uh, another great clip from our conversation about uh, evolving together in the process of bridge building and how you communicate that. And uh, we talk a little bit about the challenges of a media that's often, you know, so driven by conflict and how you can communicate empathy and bridge building in the context of a polarized media. So let's check out this clip. There's one style of politics that says everyone is static. And so you either split the difference or you just outright oppose them and try and write them off. Or there's the, what I would argue, the King philosophy that says, hey, we can evolve together to that higher order. How do we, do you have any advice of how we can, you know, communicate that so those ideas can gain more um, traction today? Because we all, and we were talking about last time how the media works. We all know the media is, is much more favoring that latter approach of conflict than the, the former approach of understanding and evolving together. So I think you first have to start with where you agree. Mm-hmm. So if there were 10 things and there may be two or there only be maybe one that you agree on, you establish that we agree here and, you know, you can make progress in that area, but then you have to go back and look at all the collective issues. And then every, every side has to have some input. Um, it's all, it's, it really is a negotiation of sorts. This clip brought me back to car rides with my family on the way to a family event at grandma's house, whether it was a holiday or or another event. And the conversation in the car went like this. Don't talk politics. Don't bring up politics. Avoid it at all costs. My question for you, Stephen, is how how do you come together and move forward together if politics has to be off the table because there is no common ground. I don't know. That's just, uh, I guess I'm the devil's advocate here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, the, the Thanksgiving table is, uh, usually a very entertaining, uh, environment and, uh, to see a lot of your family members coming from perspectives that you may disagree with. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, part of what's happening here is that family member, uh, who might have a totally different view than you, on politics is probably, as Mr. King was referencing, you know, paying attention to a totally different kind of media uh, than you are. And we've entered into a very interesting era in American political discourse where we can reaffirm our own views in our own echo chamber through traditional media and cable news, but also through social media, which has in many ways amplified uh, the echo chamber effect. So sometimes you might be part of the same fa- family, but it seems like you're living on different planets uh, when you're uh, at the Thanksgiving table. But I want to pick up on what Mr. King highlighted in terms of evolving together because 
that's a mode of bridge building that I think we often look past, whether it's at the Thanksgiving dinner table or it's in a state legislature. Too often we think, okay, you have my political opponent here or political enemy here. They're on the opposite side of the issue. And our only options are either to demonize the other side or in the case of a family dinner, just not talk about it (laughs) or seek to understand and come up with solutions together and evolve to a new place. Now, that may sound Pollyannish, but I've seen uh, through our work how people have totally moved on an issue in a powerful way. And I think that's why Dr. King spoke so fervently about the power of love because he knew that he was trying not only to change the laws, he was trying to change hearts and minds too. That's why, you know, a couple of weeks ago we were honoring John Lewis as an American hero because he refused to let hate, you know, fill his own heart. Even when he was confronted with bigotry and injustice, he stood committed to nonviolence. Even when he was bloodied by violence on the Edmund Pettus bridge, he even, forgave and reconciled with the segregationist governor George Wallace who sent those men to attack him on the bridge after George Wallace had seen the light to some degree and was willing to apologize uh, for what he did. Um, This was years later, of course. And so the point of that is how do we achieve that level of understanding? And I think it is through what King and Lewis really embodied in that sense of love and respect and dialogue And we saw that more recently in Mississippi, where the state flag uh, is in the process of coming down uh, and in in doing so, taking down the Confederate uh, symbols in this state flag. And that bill only passed. And I uh, have spoken with our elite millennial action project leaders in Mississippi who are right in the middle of this about how they built that multiracial cross-partisan coalition to change the flag. And we know, just practically speaking, Republicans have a supermajority in both houses in the Mississippi state governments, as well as the governor's mansion. So how are you going to pass this bill? It's only through reaching out and understanding and building that coalition. And he said the way they did it, both inside the Capitol and on the streets, was by not writing anyone off and approaching these conversations with that spirit of, of love and understanding And they didn't convert everyone to that position of changing the flag, but they got a lot of people to the point where they actually passed that bill with bipartisan majorities through the House, through the Senate, and signed into law by the white Republican governor uh, in Mississippi. So I just believe that, you know, there is this capacity to change. and, and, And I think it's human nature when going back to the Thanksgiving dinner table uh, kind of idea uh, when you're confronted with an idea that's so antithetical to what you believe, it's it's easy to kind of crunch up and and start to potentially even feel threatened by what they say. And, and that leads to a lot of negative emotions. Um, but I think if we can try and understand where people are coming from, uh, we might be able to do this evolutionary process that uh, Mr. King is speaking of. And one thing that was not in that clip is he's I asked him earlier uh, in the conversation, at what point in your life did you decide to adopt and advocate for the King philosophy. And he's, you know, spoke out in experiences when he was much younger where people were racist against him, but they later 
uh, transformed. And he spoke to uh, how he's personally witnessed, uh, you know, former Klan's members change uh, their views on race. So uh, that's obviously an ext- more extreme example, but that it's remarkable um, that, you know, change in evolution is, is possible. You talked about the echo chamber and you also gave some historic examples and, and some modern day examples. But do you think that today, because our echo chambers are so much smaller, we, uh, we can um, customize what we see, uh, what the messages we want to hear through social media, online news and, and things of that nature. Has it become more difficult to to spread messages and build relationships with people because of our modern day technologies. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it definitely is, but it's not a reason uh, not to try pushing for this message of, of understanding because I think our, the better way of looking at this new media environment is how do we use the tools available to us to spread positive messages and to spread messages of, of, of justice and reconciliation. I actually asked Mr. King um, in another part of the conversation about how he thinks his father would be utilizing these new technologies. I actually asked him straight up, like, would your father be on Twitter? And uh, because I think about this a lot too, like, is it a waste of time and a distraction or is it a tool of positive social change? And he said that he his father... Uh, very much sought to use the modalities available to him at the time to organize. And it's actually remarkable how much he could organize people not having these tools of social media available to us today. And so he thought, in fact, his father would be on Twitter. And, and you can, I think each of us have the choice uh, to spread positive messages or uh, darker messages of hatred and, and, and violence on, on Twitter. So it's, it's our choice uh, every day. Uh, to choose how we want to use these platforms. So how do we spread these messages using the tools we have and try and break through the echo chambers we have? And I think one way of doing that that we've managed to do through Millennial Action Project is having leaders, supporters, and spokespeople who exist in those different spheres of influence. Right. Because if you if you're in one echo chamber, but you collaborate with someone in a different echo chamber and you're both promoting the same video or the same message, then you've just potentially doubled your audience. Um, I see this in, in in the realm of music in the music industry a lot. You'll see one artist uh, who has their following, but then collaborates with another artist and, you know, gets exposed to their following as well. Think about um um, like Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus, they had this, you know, the viral, uh, you know, song last summer. Right. And those are two very different genres kind of coming together. And they exposed each of their respective audiences uh, to something new or into that collaboration. So I think there's a way to use technology uh, and transcend the different audiences in different echo chambers we have with our technology but it's certainly not easy and it's something we have to pay attention to because the easier route is just to stay in your own tribe stay in your own echo chamber it's much harder to transcend but i look at this in a larger historical context of how is a diverse democracy this experiment of self-government we have called america how's that going to thrive not just for our lifetimes but for many lifetimes in the future it all starts with here, with these types of 
modes of operating to transcend and bridge and understand and empathize, that's ultimately how this experiment is going to succeed. Okay, now let's uh, move to another clip here. And I asked uh, Mr. King to reflect a bit on Black Lives Matter, but also in a broader sense on how you know, his father was able to take movements that were initially seen as radical or, or on the fringe of society and be, be able to bring that uh, to the mainstream. And uh, Mr. King was speaking to a number of other major goals that uh, he advocates for around housing and other issues and, and similarly how we can um, bring those issues to the forefront. So let's check out this clip. For a lot of the goals you talked about, um, whether it's education or housing, uh, your father was a master of taking ideas that were initially on the fringe uh, and then bringing them into the mainstream. And we're seeing that play out in real time. We have a question coming in about Black Lives Matter, where that same evolution has happened, started off on the fringe and now is in the mainstream where a majority of Americans uh, support Black Lives Matter. Um, How do you respond to that in fact, in, in this current time where you're seeing um, movements that are starting off in the fringe and, and becoming widely, you know, approved by Americans. And what did, I guess, what lessons can a leader take away from that as, like, as you mentioned, you know, there are moments in time where your dad was very un- unpopular. Um, to kind of keep that fight going um, when you know it's the right cause. So when you're on the side of right, um, it really is the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Because if you understand what Black Lives Matter is saying, it's not saying that other lives don't matter. It is saying that if you see this behavior all over our nation, it is crystal clear that something is wrong. Kind of playing the role of devil's advocate again. Mr. King said, you know, Black Lives Matter doesn't mean other lives don't matter. But that's kind of what, you know, some people take it to mean. So why do you think that is? And I'm going to kind of a leading question here. Is it maybe lack of education on Black Lives Matter? That's kind of led to these other matters. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Well, I think sometimes we're, we're talking past each other as, as, as you're referencing here. And the intent of uh, Black Lives Matter uh, is received in the wrong way. And I think, uh, I think we all uh, understand here that um, you do have to state Black Lives Matter, uh, given the historic injustices we've had in society. And I've seen, I'll give a quick example. So um, we're part of this new documentary that's coming out called The Reunited States. And one of the storylines they follow is a you know conservative couple from rural Texas who at first didn't understand, uh, and they were kind of the example of, of someone who maybe didn't understand um, why you need to say Black Lives Matter, but through this journey that they took over across the country over the course of a year, uh, they saw these injustices at play. They understood the history behind it. They saw that no racism is actually not solved uh, in this country. And they later on in the episode said, we now understand why all lives can't matter until black lives matter. And so that's a pretty amazing kind of journey to go on. And I think in a, you mentioned education, I think probably um, many more people need to go on, on a similar journey. But 
again, we all have to understand where we're coming from. If you've not been, if you haven't seen these injustices firsthand, then you might not understand why, why that needs to be said. But what's changing rapidly is that now, as referenced in the clip, a majority of Americans support Black Lives Matter and the need for systemic reforms to uh, achieve greater equality uh, of opportunity in our society. So that's a major watershed moment that we're seeing in real time. And I've seen my own friends who um, who are white and who are now being confronted with these images and with a sense that they might need to um, educate themselves more on, on what's going on and, and maybe hadn't been exposed to it before. So I think that that's hugely positive that um, it's that that urgency is, is happening right in front of our eyes uh, to try and broaden the movement. And I think Dr. King would be very excited to see now a truly multiracial uh, coalition uh, and even cross-partisan coalition, not only supporting Black Lives Matter, but the a lot of the policy goals that, that stand behind it. Have you been noticing any other kind of fringe movements that around the nation that you think are coming to the forefront? It's a good, good question. And... Um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll give one good historical example and then maybe bring it to the modern time or current time. So I think one really great example is looking at the, the gay rights movement, which started off um, as also a fringe element of American politics, maybe uh, 30 years ago, 35 years ago. And over time, you saw this exponential change in social acceptance uh, to where ultimately you saw states approving gay marriage and then ultimately the the Supreme Court uh, doing so. So that that is a great example of uh, of a movement. And I think one of the talking with my friends who are active in that movement, they were sharing how when they reframed the message uh, to be more broadly appealing in sort of the mainstream and there were some pop culture icons who got involved as well, Ellen DeGeneres being you know one of them, then all of a sudden I think um, more moderates and people across uh, American society became more comfortable. So it, you know, that kind of dynamic is definitely there. I think more recently, um, I'll, this might come off as a bit of a wonky issue, but super important this year um, is safe voting. And when we started working on this issue back in April when the pandemic, or back in March, when the pandemic hit, um, the idea of expanding then people talked about it as vote by mail but essentially um using the absentee system to vote safely whether that's early or through the mail um was seen as something that was only done um like only a very small percentage of wisconsinites you know previously voted absentee of course because of the pandemic that would grow but we had to grow that credibility at the same time and through the efforts of a whole ecosystem of organizations, uh, including MAP and others like the Vote at Home Institute, uh, we were able to make uh, the process of absentee mail-in balloting um, an essential part of the solution this year. And you see in Wisconsin, for example, both Democrats and Republicans heavily using uh, the absentee system. And so that conversation, I think, quickly became um, more part of the mainstream now we're going to go to our final clip here, and it is one of my favorite parts of the conversation with Mr. King. 
And it's a discussion where I was talking about how uh, some leaders I work with sometimes reach what I call the sixth gear. And I use the metaphor of a car because sometimes you can get to your sixth gear, your just one, your first through fifth gear through traditional methods, but there is a nearly spiritual sixth gear where you're freed up to achieve your purpose. And I think Dr. King achieved that. And I ask him, uh, Mr. King, about that in this clip here. I think one dynamic I see with a lot of the leaders I, I have the chance to work with is um, sometimes they can reach that sixth gear. You know, let's say you have one through five gears of more of the traditional political tactics and methodologies. But then sometimes they get into the sixth gear. And that sixth gear is where the vision for your purpose is absolutely clear. And you're willing to make sacrifices for that purpose. And it's often uh, a, an inconvenient path to get there. We were speaking earlier about a lot of these you know, principles behind the King philosophy around love, including those who wrong you um, in, in, in um, sometimes violent ways, um, goes against human tendency uh, at times. And, but then when you have this clear sense of purpose, you, you know why you're doing the work you're doing. Um, and it gets you into that spiritual space that clearly your you know, father felt. And, and you know, I think the mountaintop speech you know, towards the end of his life, clearly he's, he's speaking to, um, he's, he's, he, 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 he's in a different place, um, if, if I could say that. What advice would you have in, from a kind of personal motivation and purpose standpoint for everyone who's tuning in right now to move a little closer to that sixth gear, if, if that makes sense? Yes. I, you know, I think that dad used to say that if a man has not found something worth dying for, he isn't fit to live. Ultimately, he gave that, he, sac he sacrificed. Most of us might ideally think that, but we're not, I mean, beyond your, your children, your, your wife your, 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 and family, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know. Most of us were like, you know, and that's, everybody doesn't have to get there. But what we do have to do is be the best that we can be, whatever that manifests itself as. Right. Um, and I, I think that there are few in our society who do get to that sixth gear that you're talking about. I think that's an amazing analogy, actually, quite frankly. I applaud your analogy. Uh, but what we can do is we can create a coalition and consensus and we can promote ideas um, that are in the best interest of the whole. I wish that Mr. King uh, would write an instruction manual. I'll use Black Lives Matter as an example, that movement. If equality is the best interest for all, we should be promoting it. However, how we get there, how we get to equality... Black Lives Matter calls for defunding the police. A lot of people think that's not how we're going to get there. That's not in the best interest of their community. So who decides? Who, who decides on what's the best interest for everybody? You know, the beauty of this country is that the, the people decide. And I think the efforts of political reformers like Millennial Action Project and others is to 
get to a place where the people truly decide and, and where the integrity of the people's voice is more clearly uh, brought into the halls of Congress and into the uh, rooms where the de- de- decisions are made. And I think the times where a country strays away from its mission is when uh, we get is when the people's voice isn't heard clearly enough or that the political elite that kind of runs things ends up being a bit too divorced from reality. But I think the end of what Mr. King was talking about is really important when he said that, you know, everyone might not get to the sixth gear, but we need to be the best version of of who we are. And I think when we're the best version of who we are, then we're going to be more likely looking out for other people around us. We're going to care what happens to not just our family, but to our neighbor. Um, to uh, we're going to see um, you know a a person who who maybe has disabilities and think you know what can I do to be you know helpful uh, to them. I think the best version of ourselves is when we are of service to you know other people. And I think when we think about life more in that context, we can move. Uh, closer to that sixth gear. I think that's uh, whether um, you um, believe in Christianity or Judaism or a different religious tradition, um, that's a you know constant refrain uh, for people of faith is how to help those uh, who are suffering. So I think when we can achieve that sort of mindset, then we'll have a much greater sense of what is the common good and what is good for everyone? And hopefully that can be reflected more in our government. I do want to plug the full interview that you had with, with Mr. King because he talked about Dr. King. He was a religious man, but he found that commonality between all religions and accepted everyone for, for what they believed. And, um, and that, that part really did speak to me. So I, I just want to plug that interview because you kind of touched on the religious ideologies there. Yeah, no, it's super important because uh, I think in addition to building a multiracial and cross-partisan movement, he also built uh, an inter-religious uh, movement as well. And a lot of people, you know, he, as Mr. King said in that clip, you know, um, he brought up the question of what are you willing to die for? And, you know, what would move people from uh, both privileged and less privileged backgrounds to come down to Selma, Alabama uh, to potentially get beaten by, you know, state troopers on that bridge. And I think for a lot of people, it was their faith. And their faith, whether they're a Christian or, or not, uh, really moved them. And, and I think King was really wise to build an interreligious movement that would bring them into uh, the question of human dignity and human rights. And by doing so, he was able to expand the coalition, expand the tent, and built enough support to where political leaders in, in Washington couldn't deny them any longer. And then the civil, and then you get the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, after the, the march in Selma. So I think for young leaders today who are getting started and thinking, gosh, we have so many things wrong in our society. How do we, how do we actually create real change? I think building these types of coalitions are absolutely essential uh, to creating real change in a diverse democracy. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me on the show today to sift through some very deep concepts that Mr. King was raising and 
it's food for thought for all of us. And I thought it'd be fun for us to just reflect on it together. Uh, Stephanie, uh, what did you think of the, of his remarks in general? I think his comments will stick with me. I think it's a great reminder to, we shouldn't be afraid to have difficult conversations. It can be tough for me. I worry about political correctness, about offending people. If I'm not, if I don't know a topic well enough, you know, so it's, it's important to educate yourself on the issue, have whatever opinion you have, but then have the conversation. And I think that, I mean, that to me, that's going to serve me well in my communications career um, and the young leaders that you work with as well. Absolutely. And just as you mentioned, educate yourself. I'm reminded of uh, the six steps that Mr. King highlighted uh, as part of the King philosophy. And I thought I'll just maybe end with uh, these six steps. He said to make progress and see real change. Uh, you need to one, educate yourself two educate your community, three, strategize four, negotiate five, direct action and six reconciliation. And his point in sharing that is sometimes we skip straight to uh, one of the steps without getting the earlier steps in. But he felt that order was really important to ultimately achieve reconciliation. I'm grateful for everyone tuning in. Uh, this conversation with Mr. King was personally very meaningful. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the conversation with him that uh, the decision to found Millennial Action Project took place standing in front of the Dr. King Memorial, seeing the quotes on the wall that captured those methodologies, but also seeing the years on the wall to realize just how young Dr. King was. So to go from there to now um, having a conversation directly with Mr. King about these ideas that are so fundamental to a successful democracy and the flourishing of, of human life was very meaningful. And I can't thank you enough, Stephanie, for joining me to unpack these ideas. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Meeting in Middle America with Stephen Olicara, sponsored by UW-Milwaukee, Waggett, and Bridgeville. This has been a WISPolitics.com, WISPBusiness.com podcast production.